On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism, intellectual humility, and free will at templeton.org. In this moment, I'm feeling called to walk alongside others to listen, ask, and lead in this space. So in the year ahead, about once a month, we are going to bring a beautiful array of voices, former guests on this show, engaging in conversations they want to be having. We're calling this series The Future of Hope. Today, as we get started, the esteemed journalist Wajahar Ali in an irreverent exploration of hope with theologian, writer, and podcaster Kate Bowler. These are two people I have long admired. Their friendship began when Waj, as he likes to be called, met Kate at an event with the Washington Post while his three-year-old daughter was enduring stage four cancer. Kate, who had her own stage four diagnosis at the age of 35, recognized the hospital bracelet he'd mistakenly left on, and she could tell from his face that he hadn't slept all night. Kate has an amazing ability to honor heartbreak and evoke smiles at once. As in the very title of her utterly original book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. This conversation is rich in practical wisdom for these years in which we are all living on communal edges of facing uncertainty, mortality, losses we did not foresee, and new beginnings we would not have chosen. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. In addition to her writing, Kate Bowler hosts the podcast, Everything Happens. She's a professor in the history of Christianity at Duke Divinity School, where she started her academic career researching and writing about the prosperity gospel. Wajahat Ali's essays, interviews, and reporting have appeared in many august publications. You might remember Waj's younger voice in On Being's beloved Ramadan show. So he's a longtime member of the On Being family. Thank you, Kate, for joining me to discuss the future of hope. Hello, my friend. Yeah, let's be hopeful today. Yeah, and we're having this conversation, which sounds... Like one of those things you you put on a book, uh, you buy a Hallmark card, your mother-in-law has uh, printed on a painting uh, right in the kitchen with another word that says love and happiness. And and it makes you sound really good. But then when you have to live through it in times which are painful, such as what you're going through right now, uh, what does the future of hope look like for you as we are speaking today? And how do you reconcile that? Hope is so tricky, isn't it? It's so easily confused with optimism, I think. And, um, you know, as a historian who studied optimism (laughs) for a really long time, I think it's always been hard for me to reconcile. How do you be someone like a person of hope when your, your problems aren't always solvable? Yeah, I've been kind of a cancer-y person (laughs) for Mm. about six years now. And, As far as I can tell, they just don't yet have a very good solution about why someone's so young. Um, There's just all kinds of of people just like me who are quite young getting getting colon cancer. And so because of that, I just uh, 
I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm always like a little bit off the map about whatever anyone has yet figured out about cancer. So it just means I never really get to, um, I guess, never really get to put it behind me. So yeah, I've, it's always been very confusing to figure out what hope means if hope is a story about the future and the future is, is never certain. Like you're living on the knife's edge of, of uncertainty and hope, uh, you know, life and doom at all times. Yeah. And people have this experience once in a while or they have health crisis, but uh, the, your neck is always there underneath the guillotine. And yet you're asked to be a mom and a professor and a podcast host and smile and come to the dinners and not mope too much. And then everyone looks at you as the, oh, the cancer pain. And they make that weird face like, oh. And then and then you have to like absorb their pain somehow and make them feel better for feeling worse. Uh, yeah, there's no such thing as casual when you're in a room with people who are, you know, have chronically dramatic situations. I know you know that feeling. I know well, that yeah, like, yeah. yeah. And for, I mean, for those who don't know, my I, I, I've only... V- Lived through it as a parent. My my daughter Nuseba, who just uh, turned five, is a stage four cancer survivor. And as a father, you feel fathers supposed to fix things. I yeah. can't fix this problem. Yeah. And I remember I was telling you I felt so useless. And and, yeah. and how can I fix this problem? And when it affects your kid, especially a baby, as you know, it doesn't just affect the person. It affects. There's like a a nuclear blast. Yeah, that's and it affects your your for you your husband your son you and I'm for, I'm sure for you 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 worry about everyone yeah. in addition to you worry about yourself and you're asked to be hopeful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do feel that way about all the people I love. Like I, you just you worry that your pain is a liability for sure. I think maybe like the big transition in my life in terms of trying to figure out how to be a a hopeful person has been like the the move from a crisis condition to a chronic condition. Mm. Like at first, um, there's like that big flurry of activity, right? Like something's gone wrong and everyone wants to be there to fix it. And you get all the texts and the food gift cards if you're super lucky. And like you're super lucky. (laughs) Yeah, there's like the, you don't get someone's garbage casserole. You get them, just get the cold hard cash. And uh, there's that feeling that like everybody has to buck up and like rise to the occasion. And there's like a certain energy around that. And I think one of the big transitions for me was to figure out that like I couldn't live on that energy forever. Like after a bit, you're kind of the one who's had the crises. Like I, I had the dramatic life or death problem. I had the then again life yeah. or dramatic <laughs> like or death dramatic start. Like I had too. Like I had like a few too many. Um, and then I realized like oh like you have to learn to live here the way this is like mm. much closer to the edge where it doesn't really feel exactly like a knife's edge anymore. It feels sort of like you're asked to build a tiny home on the side of a cliff. And you're just really. You know, a natural disaster might come by, but you're like really checking the weather a lot. Yeah. And, so and the I, rocks, like the pebbles <laughs> keep falling. You see some like rock dust keep falling from the edge. You're like, oh, we're I'm like, sure oh it's, it's still stable. Yeah, yeah it's still stable. <laughs> it looks, tap, tap, tap. Yeah. Is this thing safe? And I, so I think the last few years, I think one of the big questions for me was um, like now that we know, right? Now that we know that life can come apart in an instant, then how do we live like this? And I mean, like, right. really live, really get back that big spectrum again of because, like, I mean, the pandemic, like a crisis, just like constricts your life to this 
pinprick of experience. And then it's got that hyper real highs and mm. lows. I know we both know that like the super intensity of just trying to like maximize every moment and solve every problem. And yes, yeah, because it's like it's crisis versus chronic. And what happens when your crisis is chronic? Yeah, and, that's right. I remember when we shifted from we literally went from she rings the bell for those who don't know, that's the celebratory act when you're declared cancer-free. So she rang the bell, and two weeks after that, it was essentially lockdown. And for oh, us, yeah, yeah, for us, we've had no catharsis or release, really. But in a strange way, we had the training of chronic crisis that we merged into the pandemic. We're like, oh, we've been doing this for the past year. This is my kids were okay with it. Yeah. Whereas when we compared ourselves to, to many of our friends, like you said, they were shocked. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious for you, who's been going through this for six years, did the pandemic add a layer of crisis or were you like, oh, come on now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> amateurs. I'm yeah, a yeah. veteran. Yeah, I mean, there's always, <laughs> when I feel like I had like a little, like a little crisis under my belt, I was like, guys, 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 like you don't even <laughs> You don't even know. Yeah. I've already been immunocompromised. Yeah. But I, uh, I mean, I think a part of the pandemic felt very familiar. The mm. feeling that your world is suddenly small, like all the advice you could get in these self-help books. And like, I'm a, you know, I'm a historian of self-help. So I like read hundreds of these books about like how to get your best life now. And <laughs> I, uh, I think there is a feeling like, um, like there are some solutions that are just no longer available to you. Mm. And then you realize, oh, wait, life is not a series of choices. And I think the pandemic made that clearer than ever before to everyone at the same time, that like choice was always like an illusion and a luxury. It was just a obsession we picked up with the invention of modernity that we could always like really curate our lives. Mm. If life is not a series of choices, uh, then what is life? When a man and a woman love each other very much, watch. No, I'm just joking. Is that I, how it happens? <laughs> yeah, it's, I just have I these thought charts. there was a stork. <laughs> There's the charts. I'd really like to show you. Um, I, I think so. I guess. I mean, is it experiences? It's, it's these, is it fate? Is it? Uh, it's these ridiculous, gorgeous, terrible binaries, right? That we have to put up side by side. The the feeling of seeing a baby being born and then the feeling of holding someone's hand when they pass, right? Like mm. what the, what we call like the numinous, like the drawing up close to the realness of life. And we don't all get to, and we don't all want to live in that space of hyper reality, mm. but we know when we've been there and we see it when we see a sunset or like I recently got to hold little phosphorescent moon jellies in my hand on a kayaking at night and see nature light up like like underwater glitter and you think is this really like like dear god thank you for this absurd wonder and the privilege of being in this body and loving the people I love and getting a shot at doing it again and then also structural inequality and crushing medical debt and right. and cancer and like having it all up close together that seems to me to be like the big challenge of all this is is like widening our little aperture so we can see the reality of both without missing one or the other
Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today for our series, The Future of Hope, theologian and cancer survivor Kate Bowler in conversation with journalist Wajahat Ali. You know, when Nunu was going through this, Nuseba, our daughter, and she still goes through this. It, it never ends. Uh, I used to, like, sit there and imagine every situation. Yeah. And to be dark about it for just a second, but I yeah. think you have to discuss this. I used to imagine, I'm like, okay, Nuseba died. I have to clean her body. I have to bury her. What do I tell her grandparents? What do I tell my son? All right, Nuseba lives. All right, Nuseba lives, but this is chronic. All right, mm-hmm. she has a full liver transplant and a miraculous recovery. And so I had to sit there, and I don't know how you did it, but... I imagined the future in every possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Did the math because I felt like as a father, the only responsible act for me was to prepare and not go for these cliches, stupid slogans that avoid pain and death. Yeah, that's right. I know. I know. Watch. And maybe I'm a masochist. I don't know. No, I think that we try so hard to save ourselves from future pain Mm. by preparing. And I think just to be maybe bossy for a second with myself is I think there's limitations to like each of these really, really well-intentioned versions that I've tried. Like Mm. the version where, for instance, I live in the future and I run all the math and I figure out all the ways that this could go. And then I make all the plans and some of them are smart, always good paperwork to do. I make all the plans and I decide I'm going to live in it for now. I'm going to live inside of a future that isn't yet. And then there's all kinds of cliches that people will like try to give you for justifying that. There's a lot of really great religious ones, right? Like heaven is always amazing. It's totally oh, yeah. fine. Like you just we've, can like. We've <laughs> never been there, but we've seen the postcards and it looks yeah. great. There's like a desire to like really skip to the end. And in the end, you know, especially if you like believe that hope is a story about you and it's also a story about God, then then hope means that that the end of the story is always good and therefore you can read mm. backwards and everything then is therefore supposed to be wrapped up. And I've never felt that way. I've never felt that just because a future might be good that it would make the present bearable. I've mm. never thought that because it's still now. It's still making your kids sandwiches and it's still trying to balance that painful, ridiculous work of like Mm. hope and also preparation and also remembering your friend's birthdays. Like people say insane things like, uh, like nothing will be wasted, like absolute crap. Things are wasted all the time. We lose things. We can't get back. We make dumb investments with our time. Like we never get to fill up the present such that nothing's going to hurt us. Like great idea terrible plan and then i mean and then there's all the people who live in the past and like americans of course don't ever live in the past because they're very committed to like no regrets as a philosophy which is wild which is wild to me i really like it's the hyper gosh this is a country that really just is so convinced that they if they looked backwards it would surely it they would all surely turn to sand i mean it's wild it, it, I mean, you mentioned that you said a lot that I want to unpack because you mentioned this a lot in, in your new book and I took notes and, and I think it's about this fast forwarding, right? Yeah. It's like this fast forwarding through pain, fast forwarding through life, not talking about death, even though that's what everyone's talking about, putting a nice clean sheen on it. Uh, I think it's a recurring theme we have in this conversation is that you can't escape pain. 
Yeah. You can't yeah. escape death. I think I did get confused, though. I mean, in that first, like right after diagnosis, I had this thing that I would think all the time, and I kept it from everyone because you learn pretty quickly that, like, people get uncomfortable when you say certain things out loud. And I, I really thought, like, my job is to figure out how to wrap this up. So mm. I, you know, I I stopped having fights with anybody, you know, just in case I died and it would make them feel bad. And I, I thought, well, I will write this next uh, ridiculous history book and I will... I'll, I'll like finish up all my work kind of feeling like like the feeling like if you finally get to zero inbox, like all of a sudden in, <laughs> you will have come to. Yeah, to your, your, your measure of a successful life is productivity. Oh, I have always thought you could just like there is a there somewhere and I just That's needed right. to get there. And it's zero. And, it's zero in the <laughs> inbox. That's the there. Oh, I was, you know, even as a Canadian, I, I, I I've always thought that I am just the. The hyper efficiency of Americans. I thought, oh, I am immediately at home. These must be my people, because I, you know, I just thought faster, more efficient, conquer the day. I read all these books on like mastering your mornings, and it is a strange feeling. Like the point of life is doneness, and I did feel pretty confused about that because I thought I had it in my mind that like, well, if I'm never going to get to this dream age, then like I really should figure out what done feels like, and mm. then. Very weirdly, maybe the same thing that um, – so I, I work at Duke, and I they have this very intense paradigm for doneness with your life. You If you get tenure, you have to – they give you a checklist of 10 things. I love checklists. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like two massive books and then eight um, soul-searching articles in peer-reviewed publications. And if you do that um, – then you can be judged by a group of very intelligent people to be like have conquered your field in some important way. And I'd always wanted to be a historian. My dad was a historian. I knew it was like just going to be late nights grading those thin little blue books, you know, mm. and trading footnotes with people who are also going to sell out like a 200, like about 200 copies for the libraries. Yeah. It was never going to be glamorous, but that was supposed to be so deeply meaningful that it was going to make up for everything else. But it was definitely a story about life deferred because I imagined I would be this like 80 year old in a neo-gothic tower with like my fleet of graduate students just staring adoringly at me for all the changes I'd made in the field. And you know, I just I had this absurd fantasy of how it was all going to like th there was a future that I'd banked on mm. that then would have made the past uh, bearable. And then I had this very strange problem where I found out that I probably had only about like the year to live, mm. but it happened to coincide with the same year where I really should, I'd have to write a book in order to keep my job. And I, so I had to decide almost right away, well, do I write the book and live into a future that I probably won't have and possibly waste all of my time in the archives? And then there was this other version where I was like, well, what? Like I... I just stay at home and I look around adoringly at people and that's somehow supposed to take up all 18 of my waking hours. And it took me a while to, um, and a lot of like hard conversations with friends to realize that there's like a category I was, I was missing when I was trying to figure out what my life was for. Mm. And it was just, it was the feeling of um, being for something, like mm. being, I guess, between like work and vocation. 
but I was like, well, is it a waste to write something that no one will read at all? Right. And then I realized, well, I mean, no, not if it's my best dumb gifts <laughs> and, I, and it's the thing I happen to love doing and it happens to be the thing I'm good at. And so I just decided, all right, well, I will. So I woke up at 6 a.m. I got that gorgeous, smushy baby out of his crib. I would write during his bath time and I would spend the afternoons in the hospital. And I just like I cranked out a hysterically large book (laughs) that year Mm. and sent it to the publisher with like just the feeling that um, our lives are always for something, even if the math isn't obvious to anybody else but yourself, Mm. that we can have good, beautiful things that we do like even when nobody is watching so it was wonderfully convenient that I just kept living so I was like great I already did all this work (laughs) thank god but it was very like I kind of just kept that from now on there was a kind of a humbling and a feeling like you know what I will do things for no good reason and I will love it short break. More with Kate Bowler and Wajahat Ali. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. The Future of Hope series is supported in part by BetterHelp, offering professional therapy done securely online. BetterHelp's network of licensed, accredited, and experienced therapists can help individuals who are experiencing the understandable feelings of being burned out or emotionally drained from the past year. Their online therapy is convenient, more affordable than in-person therapy, and financial aid is available. Learn more about BetterHelp's professional services and special offers at betterhelp.com future. That's betterhelp.com future. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation between journalist and playwright Wajahat Ali and theologian, writer, and podcaster Kate Bowler. They speak to this moment we're in through the friendship they found on the edge of life and death that is cancer. Wajahat through his young daughter, Kate with a stage four diagnosis at the age of 35 that she's chronicled in a beloved book, Everything Happens for a Reason, and other lies I've loved. I just want to, because you mentioned something about uh, uh, I regret nothing. Yeah. Uh, when people say I regret nothing, I'm like, are you a sociopath or <laughs> are you uh, an amazing, brilliant human being? Because, <laughs> like, because seriously, I'm like, how is it humanly possible that you are seriously saying that you regret nothing? I regret yeah. everything all the time. Yeah. I mean, I go on the other extreme, but there's something about the pandemic that I think. Maybe it's just my my perverse way of looking at life. I try to see certain positives. Yeah. I'm like the pandemic forced us to stop, and for many people, especially right now, you know they're they're not really going back in the workforce because they are examining their life. Yeah. 
yeah, it forced them yeah it yeah. forced them to do an audit of their life and they're like why am i working unlike kate at a job that i hate <laughs> that pays me yeah, a wage yeah. and wasting time that i'll never get back yeah and maybe i'm making some decisions that I, I regret and i think it's you know this fast forwarding and this fast rewinding through life because to me when someone says i regret nothing it's like you're willfully not confronting your life you're leaving yeah. your life unexamined and I, I think there's something in our society that says yeah don't examine it be heedless mm-hmm. here's a checklist occupy mm-hmm. your time and be productive i mean what, yeah. what does it say about us that we regret nothing yeah it might also be another way of saying like uh i picked perfectly like if life was a series of choices i chose right or it's the version where it's a, just a different way of saying everything happens for a reason because right. they always land with, because it made me the person I am today. And like <laughs> causally, no one can disagree that it made who you, <laughs> you who you are today. Congratulations. <laughs> and so I'm, are the days of our lives. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, but like, I think it's just, it's fear, right? We're so scared of looking back and, one, and, and, and saying, I wasted that. Right. Like I, I could have done that better. Like that is something I lost and I can never get back. I feel the pain of that. There's so many things we can't get back. But the solution, of course, is not this delusional forward momentum. I mean, futurism doesn't also solve the problem of mortality. Like we don't, you know, Walt Disney style get to promise cryogenic freezing and then to be for future reanimation. We're um we get numbered days. That's right. And inside those numbered days, we get really often impossible choices. This or that, this opportunity, those obligations. I have this podcast where we like a lot a lot of the audience for everything happens, which is just what I I call it. I just put I just crossed off for a reason, so it just says everything happens. Period. Like it's then, just too long. <laughs> yeah, I know. They're just like it. <laughs> just keeps happening, friends. But so much of the audience are, are people um, who have to forego their own dreams because they're 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 taking care of kids with special needs or mm. or aging parents or or frankly they're in really uh, service heavy jobs where they have to choose other people every day. And in in so in most people's lives. The version of best life now is that they facilitated the dreams and hopes and dignity of other people. And in that version, they they are allowed to stop and say, like, there are things I can't get back. This good or bad thing was at the expense of these other good dreams, but they're gone now. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like the pivot then is with whatever days I have left, am I willing then to take that risk and make those changes, or am I able and privileged to make those changes to live out the rest of my life, whenever and however death comes, to live a life of meaning and purpose? Yeah. Because otherwise, the other pivot then can you could be a nihilist. You know, it could lead to such dread and pain and depression and cynicism. I have wasted everything. It's gone. Yeah. I always, I guess, in when I in my mind, I always think about it kind of like a seesaw with a fulcrum right in the yeah. center. Like the, if you get tilted too much toward the past, it, those questions can be really consuming. I mean, like most of us will really screw things up at some point. Even just the thought of it will like. Will prick it's overwhelming. Yeah. It is. It, yeah. And the, the fear of having lost too much. And then in the future, the fear of then not yet being able to accomplish it. And then both can really 
rob us. I just think that the solution is not then to pivot to this very facile be present in which that's the solution to the past and the, and the future. I think the solution to the past and the future is that there is none. There's like, is that we borrow from each of them for really, to make really meaningful choices is that we like pull from the past in order to inform a richer future. We pull from the future to be like, wow, I, it reminds me that these things are yet undone, you know, but like if we prevent ourselves from moving between past, present and future, I think we become really narrow in our mm. cultural language for, for how to live. And I'm reminded of your situation when you found out that you had a year to live and you're like, I might not finish this book, but you know what, damn it, I, I, I'm a nerd. <laughs> I'm gonna, I I, I'm gonna enjoy. <laughs> I'm gonna enjoy this process, and I'm gonna enjoy this experience, and I'm gonna engage in the mundane activities of of being a mom and a wife and being a professor, and let's see where it goes. Uh, <laughs> and and and, yeah. and and there is a a meaning there, a purpose there, and it, it seems the way you even described it, there was a joy there as well. Yeah, yeah. In pouring yourself into something that is about you and also not about you, which is always a relief because, you know, pain makes us all narcissistic. We're like, did you know how real this is? Do you know how important my pain is today? <laughs> Let me share it with the world. <laughs> I've actually taken out this billboard. Um, I think another thing that kind of, I guess, noticing too is that there's just so many different kinds of like living in the present. Like my friend Luke said this one time about that there's like different ways of experiencing time. And one is um, the kind of time that you and I know really intimately, which is tragic time. And like we know what it's like to feel that heightened present where everything really matters because you have to make choices because everything you love is so precious. And also we know that we can't live there forever because we're just not we're not built to live yeah. that edge that close to the edge all the time. And then there's. Um, well, he reminded me of like ordinary time or like pastoral time. Like there's, you know, anyone who's a farmer knows there's like sowing and reaping time. And I was always, you know, the more I was into tragic time, the more I was like a little judgmental about that. I was like, it sounds very boring. <laughs> it sounds yeah. very commonplace. But that's the, um, you know, who's picking up your mom on Tuesday. Did you send that email? Have you made that phone call? Like it's all the the wonderful, stupid, ordinary stuff of day-to-day -day life. And like, that is also necessary and good. And then there is something that we've all experienced together very recently, which is apocalyptic time. It's yeah. the feeling that like that there's a heightened um, that that we know that the future is not guaranteed and that there is a kind of lightness and darkness and uh, like binaries. We're like kind of wrapped up in binaries about how we're seeing the world and, you know, and, and we experience apocalypticism with um, with our environment like wildfires and right. global Droughts, warming and hurricanes. fear of and we we see it and we feel it we experience the apocalyptic time when we see the scope and magnitude of racial injustice as we understand that structures are not just broken but that they collapse in on people mm -hmm. and that the weak are not sheltered and that the poor are not cared for and that um, far more people are not given the luxury of invulnerability mm. and can't and won't and like in all these forms of time, like we, we like have this feeling like we're seeing things as they really are. Like that feeling when you like count your kids' eyelashes and you think like, I, I see the whole world mm. in just right now. But the truth is like all of them are true, 
and we toggle between them all all the time. And so like we just can't live in any one version for too long, frankly, without not really seeing like the scope of what the wholeness of our lives require. Yeah, I think that it's important because it oftentimes, you know, uh, we in America live in that Hellenic timeline that just keeps going forward. And, and most of the world has lived in that Hebraic kind of like circular timeline where the past bleeds into the future, the future yeah. is in the present. And you mentioned like climate change, the future is like literally giving us the warning in the present. And when it comes to systemic inequality and white supremacy and racism, we're not done with the past in America. Yes, uh, and, you know, and, and in a yeah. macro way and both in a micro way. And I think also when it comes to the, the, you know, taking audits of your life, how can you not regret life? That's a life unexamined. And obviously the pain of the past is there, but then we also have to live, right? For me, it's like, okay, be mindful in the present, but know that this moment will pass and I will be now living in the future, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I think as a person of faith, you know, you believe in yeah. God, I believe in God. I feel like, you know, people who who, who do not believe, that's fine. Uh, I've never been a proselytizer. Uh, I've always actually always been the token Muslim. But I think there's something about the spiritual traditions and philosophical traditions that are rooted in this understanding of how, uh, you know, we are just sands in time <laughs> like, yeah. and things are connected and this too shall pass and we shall pass with it. Mm -hmm. But you still have to find meaning in this, whatever mm -hmm. this is, this absurd mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And I ask you this and I bring this all up because... With everything you've said, as a person who has heard some bad news today, a person who's six years on with cancer, as a person who still believes in God, you describe yourself as an incurable optimist. Yeah. How yeah. do you reconcile that? How do you explain that to someone who's sitting there going, yeah. how can you still be a person of faith and an incurable optimist with all this? Yeah. Yeah, because there was a version of it that was just not true that I was really hooked on, which was I had I had really thought that optimism was the same thing as certainty as like, if I just pick right, if I just, if I just, mm. like, I'm going to fix this. And then, of course, being incurable has been like um, living with the things that I just didn't choose. I would not have picked this body. I would not have picked being on my, I think I'm on my ninth belly button at this point because wow. <laughs> of abdominal surgeries. And I just, um, yeah, I had confused it with um, certainty. And I think now to me, just with the beauty of the circularity that you were describing, I think about being an incurable optimist as being a, a really fundamentally a story about hope. And like, it's hope for me, it's hope for you. Mm. That like, hope is a story about all of us that God puts in the future, like ever before us and always with us and always behind us. Mm. But it moves in that kind of like, beautiful way that we will someday be wrapped up in a story about love that is beyond time and beyond our dumb bodies and beyond finitude and beyond tears. And that will be really beautiful. But in the meantime, it was always about all of us. That like we belong to each other in a way that like makes hope not really just about whether I get a cure and and my life works out. It's about whether like you feel yourself as part of this like wild project about love. Yeah, it's never really fully um, 
here. It's always just a little bit not yet. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today for our series, The Future of Hope, theologian and cancer survivor Kate Bowler in conversation with journalist and playwright Wajahat Ali. You know, you say you're an incurable optimist and you have hope. And how do you reconcile that optimism and hope in a loving God with what we have witnessed over the past two years with both the pandemic at a macro level and what you have been enduring on a personal level. I think you and I probably both believe in, um, in like an individual and a corporate view of brokenness, right? Is that like everywhere around us is the terror and the wonder that there are that there is a field called pediatric oncology, right? Like mm-hmm. it is a it is a tragedy, and um, I think always being able to be honest about the the utter brokenness we see reflected in our bodies and in our cultures, and yet also like flowers through concrete. The way that like even mm-hmm. in the cancer center, like you see that sun reach over and like tuck a strand of hair behind his mom's ear and you go into a what you think is going to be like the worst few years of your life and you end up with a nurse named Meg who goes on vacation with you (laughs) and you learn how to um, live with the things that you can't change I find that the brokenness is always an indictment (laughs) of all of us and also just the promise that, like, this isn't it. There's got to be something else. Because this was, um, like, a mixed bag, I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. But but the brokenness and the vulnerability is also, in my opinion, a reflection, perhaps a, re- a, a revelation, right, of, of life and, and God and maybe God's purpose. And it's an indictment of that type of uh, narrative that you and I both know in religious communities is that, you are supposed to be the noble, pious, Spartan sufferer, right? And, but but in your books, which I really appreciated, and even in your you know in, in your podcast and the way you've shared your journey, is you're a woman of faith who believes in God, but you share the phlegm and the snot, and the, and the, and the regret and the pain and the worries and the fears and the imperfections, right? Because again, as you know, in our communities and oftentimes religious communities, there is this this the checklist. Yeah. Of how a pious person has to be, and everything happens for a reason. And if you pray hard, then then God will reward you and have faith and suffer well and die well. Uh, <laughs> oh, and that's I will. It. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, I will suffer badly. I uh, I do. Um, I think part of why I just got so intellectually and spiritually interested in all of the cultural scripts that you just described and you know like write book after book about them is there's a traitness that the way that that we want to tell we want to 
to have either God or each other um, to solve like the fundamental problem <laughs> of living and like the whole idea that there are formulas for how to live and how to die perfectly is like a really wonderful lie. Um, you could put it in a tweet. <laughs> but there will never, I don't, I'm letting myself off the hook for the feeling that there is going to be a finished life for, for me. Hmm. And I it, think knowing is it for, that. Is it, for any, is it for any of us though, Kate? That's the thing. I'm going to say everybody, but I know certainly for me hmm. that like, I don't think it's possible to feel wrapped up when you just have like this much love for the the people that like yeah sorry no why are you saying sorry uh thank you for always sharing so deeply and fully with us uh your audiences uh your fans uh your family your friends uh you know we we have appreciated (laughs) your vulnerability in in being so human uh on this on this journey uh how dare you watch on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a journey, <laughs> on this journey called life. I'm trying to figure out what is the hallmark way of saying this. Uh, just the messiness, the messiness of this thing called being human, right? Uh, and, and like you mentioned in your book, there is no cure for being human. No. You, you got to live it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's this. There's this. Like, There's this. Again today. <laughs> Watch. I think one of the things I like most about you, and I like lots of things about you, is the fact that you, uh, this whole thing with your daughter really cracked you open to everybody's pain and not just your own. And I think that's, um, it's been a beautiful thing to see up close. And it's certainly something that I would love to emulate. You, you, uh, I'm learning from you. Uh, we, we have a ways to go. Uh, for those of you who, it's very interesting, you know. Uh, thank you for the compliment. I wish, I wish I was like that. My wife's like that, the deeply empathetic one. So I'm learning from her. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things. If you see me on Twitter, sometimes you're like, oh man, that guy hits hard when it comes to politics. But then, uh, I, I still, I can't help it, despite my that bitter old Pakistani uncle in me. I'm still always rooting for people, right? Like I'm still. I can't like I think they what what they said was every cynic was once an optimist and and I don't know if I'm cynic I'm like a pragmatist but I can't help but be hopeful like I just there's so much to live for and and I see this daily miracle in the form of my daughter and I don't use the word miracle in a trite sense like in the fact that there was help and 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 health insurance and privileges and a, a stranger's liver in her body but she lives and every day you know, my wife and I, at least both individually and together, at least once in d- together, we mentioned this out loud, but I know I say it multiple times, she said multiple times, like, look at her, look at Nusayba, yeah. look at that. And so, and you know, it's one of the situations where you said the past blends into the present to the future. You yeah. live in the moment and you see her because you don't know what's gonna happen in the future, but it was thanks to people's kindness and science and prayers that she's able to live. And then the hope is that inshallah, she thrives, right? Yeah. And then, so we all need something to keep fighting for. And so for me, it's like, if I give up hope, and there's so much that will inspire you to give up hope, climate change, racism, <laughs> a violent insurrection, the end of democracy, uh, income inequality, I'll just keep going for the next hour. Uh, <laughs> this is a really good list. <laughs> yeah, but like, you know, you're like, but then I say, okay, but these, there's these kids and, and, and they smile and, and they still have joy and I'm still alive and I still have to live. 
and I still have to find purpose in life. And so how can I be one to not be hopeful after what I have been through and seen through my daughter? Do you know what I'm saying? No, like I, that, I that. Like when people say, yo, how you're just, you're being earnest and sincere. I'm like, I would be a fraud if I was to sit here and say that uh, hope is delusional a- after experiencing what I've said for the past two years. And after seeing you, after six years, you were, you, were, you were given one year and you're just like this prolific beast who's just like knocking out, like you're like Tupac, you're just knocking out albums nonstop. Oh, my hologram is going to be incredible. <laughs> Your hologram is going to be like, children, look at me. Um, Krista, Krista asked me to ask you these three questions and to, to honor the host for who I'm graciously stepping into. She was generous to give us uh, her platform and to allow others in this space uh, the final three questions she recommended, but I like these questions uh, for you. What does it mean to be human for you today? Mm. And I really want you to focus on today. Mm-hmm. I think, um, what a beautiful question. I think for me, it's the feeling of, um, of magic you get when like one moment kind of unfolds into a different moment. And I, um, I've always really appreciated the fact that I knew that when we would talk that I would be able to tell the truth about, um, about just feeling kind of heartbroken today, mm. to be honest. Mm. So yeah, I think for me, um, because I think people are magic, being human today means like I got to be, I, I couldn't have like predicted it or laid it out, but I knew that like you show up and and then magic happens. And that always makes me feel like unbelievably lucky, like catching fireflies kind of feeling. And uh, if I could, if I was in any way a, a source of healing and at least a smile, then I feel like the day was worthwhile. Uh, <laughs> I, I did my small part uh, in this thing called life. Uh, what is making you despair? Um, medical debt. I, mm. I don't just mean mine. I just mean the fact that the largest after uh, like an earth plague descends that uh, people are crushed, not by just by tragedy, but um, by a punitive uh, financial system that preys on the weak. And finally, what is giving you hope? I'm sorry that I'm like actually really going to think about that for one second. What is giving me hope? Um, I read a lovely article the other day about um, how we can be characterized not just by our finitude, like the things that are numbered, Mm. but our natality, like Mm. the idea that we have such unbelievable potential to begin again. And I, I feel that so often when I see how hard people try. Like especially during the pandemic, how hard they tried to survive and care for one another and move forward. So yeah, I think natality is like, it's a complete miracle and it makes tomorrow feel really beautiful. Kate, you're a good human. You're a, I told my wife that. I told her the first time after we talked, I said she's a good hearted uh, human being. She's a good Thanks. person. And so uh, we pray for you because we're praying people. We're always Thanks. wishing for, uh, well for you and your family. And we uh, are delighted 
by you and uh, the gifts you bring every day. Thank you, my dear. This was this was a joy. Kate Bowler is an associate professor of the history of Christianity in North America at the Duke University Divinity School. She's the author of Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, and she hosts the podcast Everything Happens. Her new book in September 2021 is No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear. Wajahat Ali is a columnist at the Daily Beast and a senior fellow at the Western State Center and Auburn Seminary. He wrote the celebrated play, The Domestic Crusaders. His first book, Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on how to become American, will be published in early 2022. Project is Chris Hegel, Loren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Sheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Patrick Otuma, Ben Cott, Gautam Shrikishin, Lily Benowitz, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, and Matt Martinez. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 